be so kind to turn the uh, the other lights on around here. I appreciate it. I need all the help I can get at this point. Second Peter, continuing our study. <clears throat> really, I consider the title of my message, Shortened Eyewitnesses in the Prophetic Word. Really, um, we'll, we'll see that Second Peter is uh, largely a part, uh, about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we'll see a quote here by Martin Lloyd-Jones and... Um, just want to bring us back to speed of where we are, and this evening we will finish uh, chapter one, and next time, Lord willing, we will begin in chapter two. Let's look at and just read, follow along with me, uh, beginning in verse one. Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and your knowledge self-control, and your self-control perseverance, and your perseverance godliness, and your godliness brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ had made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. And then our text for us this evening. We will begin in verse 16. Let me read you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. <clears throat> he says, um, <clears throat> to, to remind us to, that Peter is writing to Christian people who are in difficulties. Maybe that sounds familiar to some of us. This is not a theological disquisition. It is not a mere philosophical essay. This is a pastoral letter written by a pastor to actual Christian people. 
members of churches. His object is to help and encourage them, to establish them, to strengthen them. As he himself puts it, his object is is to enable them to make their calling and election sure. He wants these Christians to have certainty and to be in such a position that whatever may happen outside, whatever may happen inside, they shall remain unaffected and strong. Now, as the apostle goes on in this particular matter, dealt with in the 16th verse, he connects it with everything else that has gone before. So everything else that we have read up into now into this verse 16. For he says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here is something additional. And in a sense, we are entitled to say that at this point, we are introduced for the first time in this explicit manner to what is in reality the central theme of this whole epistle. In other words, the apostle here refers to what is commonly known as the second advent, or what we would say normally is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So two things to consider as we look at these few verses this evening is the eyewitnesses and the prophetic word, all pointing to and all um, proclaiming the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 16, as I just read uh, from Martin Lloyd-Jones's quote, these cleverly devised tales, we did not follow these things, Peter says, and we'll see that word, we, several times this evening. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when Peter says we, he's aligning himself with the rest of the apostles. They all preach the same message, uh, the same gospel. And that is true today of every uh, true preacher, every true evangelist, teacher of the word of God, is to teach uh, the same message, the message of the apostles, the message of the scriptures, as we know, the same gospel. For Paul said in Galatians Chapter 1, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So they did not follow cleverly devised tales or simply stated myths. I remember when I was younger in elementary school, I think it was, and no, junior high. And for some reason, for like two years, I was obsessed with Greek mythology. And I couldn't get enough of it. And I was reading. It had pictures in there as well. But that's when I, had, uh, I started reading a lot. And about Zeus and the rest of them. And all these myths. And Medusa and all that stuff. And I was just obsessed with it for, for a while. But they were myths. They were fun little stories. But they're myths. Mythology, right? Greek mythology. And these myths uh, that Peter is speaking of here are seen as negative. And we see that in the New Testament. These are negative, these myths, and they're contrasted with the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of scriptures that we can look at real quick that are not far from where we are, First um, Timothy and Second Timothy, familiar text. I'd invite you to turn there just to read this with us. 
or with me as I read. There's no us here on top uh, on the platform. It's just me, myself, and I. Um, <clears throat> First Timothy chapter one, verse three through seven. <clears throat> And then we'll go to 2 Timothy 4. Paul says to Timothy, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Okay, so here he's saying, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Don't do that. Don't pay attention to myths and these endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So when we're teaching about the truth of the Word of God, it does us very little good to speculate on things. I mean, at times we have, uh, we don't know certain things, of course, when we read the Word of God and we say, it seems like this is, and we have to, uh, it seems like this is what the case is, or five theologians say this and one say this. And so we do speculate in that, um, and we form our opinion, our theological grid, but uh, we don't just speculate on things as a normal way, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Think of those things. These are good takeaways for us. Love from a pure heart. You can only have a pure heart if we are uh, born again, first and foremost, right? And how do we keep our heart pure? Because it becomes defiled as we walk the Christian life, right? As we sin, as we walk and we, we navigate through this world. And we say, God, re, uh, renew a pure heart within me. And a good conscience. We want to have a, a good conscience about us, a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Not what, right? An insincere faith. We want to continue to have a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. And that does not lead to anything good. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Another familiar one for us. Verse 3 and 4. Well, let's start in verse 1. This is a charge. And this is a charge uh, to Timothy, and this is a pastoral charge, and this is a charge really to anyone who handles the word of God. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and by Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Notice that. Endure, they will not endure sound doctrine. They want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So sometimes when we talk about or when we, we ask the question, how we think of these false teachers, these prosperity gospel teachers or whatever they are, and they have multitudes and multitudes of people there and we say, how could they stay there? Well, this is a verse that, that, that helps us understand that. They want their ears tickled. And they're responsible for um, accumulating for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. In a lot of ways, this is what they want to hear. And they will turn away their ears from truth 
and will turn aside to myths. So we see these different actions taking place. We see it's almost like Psalm 1, this, um, this being more comfortable and comfortable with wickedness. You're first standing, standing then you're seating, you're very comfortable. Here's the same uh, progression or degression, turning the, away their ears from the truth and turning aside to myths. Turning from what is good, turning aside to what is no, no good. Accumulating teachers, turning to myths. Going back to 2 Peter 2. One through three. This is right here in our context. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And their greed, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So the false teachers in Peter's day insisted that the teachers of the apostles, or the teachings of the apostles, were myths, and particularly the return of Christ. Right, we see that even in in Second Peter, when the mockers will come, in in chapter three, that mockers will come and say, "Where is the promise of His second coming? Where is this? This isn't going to happen." Mocking the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter says, "We were eyewitnesses of His Majesty." Just as a quick sidebar, which is good for us. As far as our apologetics remind us of what Vodi Bauckham said about eyewitnesses and about the scriptures. The Bible is reliable because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And they reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And there were 40 authors on three different languages written on three continents over 1,500 years. Peter says, we made known to you. We, again, this word, again, the church is founded on the apostles, on their teaching. And they said, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word power, dynamis, we hear that word dynamis and we think dynamite, right? Not from the one sitcom back in the day, but dynamite the, um, that blows up. Or the coming, the parousia, the coming of our Lord. You put them together, the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the powerful return of the Lord Jesus when he returns, in other words, he returns in power. And Peter lets us know, as I just mentioned, that mockers and deniers mock and deny this. And they say that, or Peter says in chapter 3, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
The mockers will mock, deniers will deny, but Jesus describes his powerful return. He says uh, something in Matthew, I invite you to turn there really quick with me if you would, and then we're going to go to Revelation. We want to see what Jesus himself says about his second coming. Peter says we're eyewitnesses of his majesty, so they're eyewitnesses, and we'll see in a moment, of, of his second coming. And then we have the prophetic word, the prophetic utterance of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what did Jesus say about his second coming? Chapter 24 and verse 27. <clears throat> a lot we could say about this section. This could be, we could spend a year on this chapter, or more than that alone, but just for our sake this evening. Jesus speaking on perilous times and in, in speaking of his return, he says in verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then verse 30, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. We're going to be back in Matthew, but let's go to Revelation chapter 19. book of Revelation. We all know where that is, last book in the Bible. <clears throat> John seeing these visions that the Lord has given him, chapter 19, verse 11, the coming of Christ, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Indeed, the powerful return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter 3, 11 and 12. So as Peter is writing on his, on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, primarily one main theme in second Peter, how should we live? Since all of these things are be to, to be destroyed in this way, in verse 10, 
when the Lord comes like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we see there how we are to live in light of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in holy conduct and in godliness. Well, so what all takes place at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we'll see this more in chapter 3 and in God's providence as we move along in the study of eschatology on Wednesday nights, we will see this as well. And this wasn't arranged by me by any stretch. So let us say, hmm, why would the Lord have us study this out in more detail and we rest in his sovereignty? But it will be certain on that day who is entering into Christ's kingdom. That will be certain. And who will it be? It will be those described in chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. Remember we talked about the virtues that must be named amongst the Christian? Because those described Christians, those are the ones who are going to be entering into his eternal kingdom on on that day. So the apostles preached and made known to people the power and coming of the Lord. Shouldn't we, with a complete and closed canon of Scripture, with the illumination that God gives us through laborious prayer and study of the Word of God, shouldn't we do the same and speak of the powerful second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Preaching, teaching, warning, pleading, because of the power and second come, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have eyewitnesses and we have prophetic utterances, as the scripture teaches us. Eyewitness testimony. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Again, we see that word we in verse 16 of first, Second Peter chapter 1, where we are. This statement apparently refers back to the transfiguration. Peter didn't just say, oh, I, where did I see this eyewitness of his majesty? This has context. But let's go back to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew once again, and we'll see why Peter said this. And it's interesting how, because we read this already, but it's interesting what Jesus says and then what happens, the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, or 16, okay, we read this already, but what Jesus says here in verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, he said that, he spoke that, some of them were standing there. Now, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. It it seems that any time the disciples, like 
or Moses goes up on a high mountain, something spectacular is going to happen. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Remember Moses, what happened to him in uh, Exodus 34? Here it happens to Jesus, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah, they appeared with him, talking with him. And Peter, who we're studying Second Peter now, who wrote about this eyewitnesses, uh, being an eyewitness of, the, of his majesty, who was writing about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus just says here in Matthew 17 that the, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, speaking of his second coming. So they're getting a glimpse of this. And Peter writes about it in Second Peter. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, this is young Peter here. Peter that writes second, Peter wouldn't be saying these things. Peter at Pentecost, preaching, would not be saying these things. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples heard this. They fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. It's amazing that they had this glimpse of his majesty and Peter wrote about it, Second Peter, which we're studying this evening. And when they saw this glimpse of his majesty, their reaction, of course, is to fall down on their face. But then Jesus comforts them. He comforts them and says, get up and do not be afraid. the disciples receiving a glimpse of his divine glory and his glory to come when he returns. Just as in the Old Testament, Moses saw God, it changed him. When these disciples saw this transfiguration, they were so changed by it that Peter wrote about it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter. Isn't this the same Isn't this true for any one of us? Anyone who encounters the Lord Jesus Christ by way of salvation, you're changed dramatically. You cannot encounter the Lord Jesus Christ by way of regeneration and not be dramatically changed to the point here where you can write about it, right? In salvation. As an eyewitness to this, as Peter being an eyewitness to this, it shores up Peter's credibility and provides emphasis on the importance and glory of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17 and 18, 2 Peter chapter 1. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. When did he receive honor and glory? Well, we just read this. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
when they refer, when Peter refers to to him by the majestic glory, this is a side note, but important. Reformation Study Bible says this is an indirect way of referring to God Himself. One reason for speaking indirectly was to avoid any possible misuse of the sacred name of God. Jesus receiving this honor and glory, God says. God the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This approval by this divine voice, this utterance, this glory, the transformation of his face and clothing at the transfiguration. In Luke chapter 9, you can read that as well. This honor, these words from heaven, words of recognition. Uh, The others that were there, no, no. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is distinct from everyone else. The honor goes to him and him alone. The transfiguration in Matthew 17 immediately follows the declaration that God's kingdom will come with power. It anticipates Christ's powerful return ushering in the age to come. This age, the age to come. You can read about the transfiguration as well in Mark chapter 9, verse 1 through 13, and Luke chapter 9, verse 27 through 36. So Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and indeed they were. And he also says, we have the prophetic word, verse 19. We have the prophetic word. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. As marvelous as the transfiguration was, we, he says, have the scriptural witness. And we with a closed canon, have the scriptural witness and the Holy Spirit within us to give us understanding of this prophetic word. And the prophetic word specifically, Peter is speaking here of the Old Testament scriptures. We see that in verse 20 and 21 supports that. We'll see that in a moment. The word functions as a light, does it not? Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What does this mean? This last clause of verse 19. We have this prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This day dawning most likely refers to the day of the Lord. That would go along with the thread and the theme of 2 Peter, speaking of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in contrast to the mockers who say, where is his coming? In contrast as well to the false prophets who were teaching something else, were teaching myths and false teachings. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises, most likely referring to the day of the Lord, the second coming. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment and salvation. 
of punishment and of deliverance. Final day of the Lord, this consummation. And Peter, clearly this must be the the day of the Lord. And when we see this eschatological thread through 2 Peter. Pay attention. Take heed is another way of saying pay attention. When someone tells us to pay attention, well, hopefully as adults, no one really tells us that. Pay attention. But when we were kids, right, people would say that to us. Pay attention. Or maybe we say that. Are you paying attention? Take heed. Pay attention to this word we have, this lamp to our feet, this light for our path. Pay attention. Consider some applications from Puritan William Bridge on this, paying attention of this scripture. He says, well, scripture light is our great light and most sure light. We must pay attention. We must take heed because a Christian may be in a dark place and condition. Oftentimes we talk about and the scripture obviously teaches that darkness is uh, speaking of the world and darkness speaking of evil. But as Christians, as we read Job and we can read David, we can see at times they were in what we would call a, a dark place or a dark condition, a frowning providence. We would say, I'm going through a real hard time right now. I was speaking to a brother the other day and I've had a Christian. I've had a really rough week and I know what he means. A frowning providence, a, a time even of feeling of deserting, a dark time when it, it is as if God is moving his hand from the believer, still converted, but this dark time is needed in this believer's life for whatever reason. To draw us close to Christ once again, remember, near the cross, near Jesus doing everything we can to say, no, I will stay near Jesus Christ. No one or nothing will get in my way of being near Christ. These clouds at times, if you're in a dark place, you can't see the sunlight as it were. Thankfully, we have Puritans, and we have like Charles Spurgeon and such who we look up to and we, we read and we can learn from their dark times as well. And we say, wow, look what they went through. Uh, William Bridge also says, though he be in the dark, God has not left him without scriptural light to walk by. So though one may be in dark spots, in a dark place, we still have the light of the word of God with us. And the the scripture is the most excellent, safe, and sure light that we have, he says. And the duty of all Christians is to take heed, especially in their dark times. This morning star arising in your hearts, possible allusion to Numbers 24, verse 17, that says a star shall come forth from Jacob. This arising in one's hearts, listen to what Tom Schreiner says about this. When Jesus comes, 
We will not need the prophetic word to shine in a dark place, this sinful world. Then our hearts will be enlightened by the morning star himself, that which prophecy points will have arrived. We will be in a dark place no longer, never again. And we'll leave this dark place, this sinful, uh, sin-cursed world that we live in, close to Jesus, near the cross, used by Jesus to proclaim the cross. If you're far away from Jesus as a Christian, get my illustration. You're not near to him. Do not expect to be used by him. You want to be used by Jesus? Draw near to Jesus and let nothing separate you from that nearness to God, that nearness to his son. This lamp shining in a dark place, applications for us, uh, the light of God's power shines in in darkened hearts, right? And darkness is also the entire world that is not seeking after God, but must be infiltrated by the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be those lamps shining in a dark place. And our light bulb must never go out, must never burn out. It must continue to go on and shine brightly. And then we have verse 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay, so we, let's use quick application for that. When someone says, I have a prophecy for us that God just gave me, no, they do not. We turn around and we leave. Or they sit down and they close their mouths. If that ever were to happen here, if someone ever stand up and say, oh, I have a prophecy, no, you don't. Be quiet, leave. Ushers, deacons, take them out. Or her. Um, but we've seen that type of thing. I watched uh, Cessationist, the movie, or documentary. I thought it was very well done recently. And they, they talk about some of this. And then when modern-day, quote-unquote, prophets, they have this prophecy, so to speak, and they say that something's going to happen. Like, specifically, I'll give you an example, that... A certain individual is going to win an, a certain election, and then they don't. And then, well, I just got this wrong. And you have others say, well, he just got it wrong. Doesn't mean he's a false prophet. He just got that wrong. And then they can move on, and, and people forget about it, and they move on in their ministry. Sickening, sickening and sad. Well, what is meant by verse 20? But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's interpretation. I think the ESV puts it best. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. There are other proposed meanings of this verse, yet this plain way of stating it fits with the context of verse, uh, of, excuse me, of chapter 2 and 3 of false teachers and those who distort the Word of God. We see... Look, just look at chapter 3, verse 16 in, in 2 Peter. <clears throat> As also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which 
are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort. Remember what he's just talking about? I just mentioned in chapter 2, briefly, the false prophets, those who should not be handling the word of God. And verse 16, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. They distort these things. Why? They have their own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we have the eyewitnesses. Peter says we were eyewitnesses. We have the prophetic utterances. And then he says what these prophetic utterances are, this prophecy of Scripture. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. No one just came up with these things on on their own will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Each prophecy came from God, originated from God, not the will of man, not according to the ideas of man. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. We see this in the Old Testament as well. I'll just give you one example. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Okay, so let me read a little bit about just kind of shifting gears for a moment about the inspiration of Scripture. Just as a way of concluding for us. This is from Kurt Daniels' book on, uh, I think it's called The Basics of Biblical Doctrine, something along those lines. A very good book, practical. He says a couple things about inspiration. Now, many of us know this, and this is like we understand this. It's good to be reminded of things. He says, the Bible is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. This is one word in the Greek. It literally means God breathed. God did not breathe something into the Bible. God breathed the Bible out of his own mouth. Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When we speak, we exercise our lungs so that they expel air, vibrate our vocal cords, and move our tongue, cheeks, and lips to form sounds we call words. God sent forth the Holy Spirit. The very breath of God, John 3. He moved certain prophets and apostles so that they then put down in writing the exact words God wanted them to write. Technically speaking, it is the Bible, not the writers, which are inspired. inspired. Also, he writes about how inspiration is not illumination. God gave the writers the very words, not just an inner illumination of wisdom. The special inspiration has ceased. What we need now is illumination. We have the closed canon of Scripture. We have all the Scripture that we need. We need illumination to understand the Word of God. The light is on, and we need to have our eyes open. Because of sin, the natural man is incapable of understanding the true meaning of the Bible. Jesus said, He who is of God hears God's words. 
Therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. John 8, verse 47. The Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible chooses to illumine whom he will to understand the Bible. And he does this through the Bible itself for the entrance of your words gives light. Psalm 119, verse 130. So it behooves us when we open up the word of God to study in our morning devotions, in our quiet time, in our studying for a teaching, whatever it is, to plead with God, give me understanding of this. Help me to understand what your word is teaching here. Recommendation as well is when we're studying the word of God, always have a pen and paper next to you. Because God will bring things to your mind, illuminate things to your mind as you study, as you look at the cross references and you write things down. Next thing you know, you've got your little two-point devotion. Um, also, another quote on this from Tom Schreiner. He says that Peter states it baldly, not boldly, he says baldly. Men spoke from God. Human beings spoke. And they spoke with their own personalities and literary styles. Hence, inspiration does not require a dictation theory of inspiration. The words the prophet spoke, however, ultimately came from God. They were inspired or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter defend the accuracy of the prophecy in the scriptures. That's why when we see um, different writers in, let's just say, in the New Testament, we can see the different personalities or writing styles, so to speak, but it is God-inspired. It is God-breathed word. And this is what God has left us with. And as we wait on the second coming of the Lord, we have eyewitness testimony, we have prophetic utterances, and we have the, the word of God for us, the God-breathed word. I'll pray for us, and then I believe we're going to sing one more. Okay. <clears throat> Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word this evening that you have given us. Thank you for the eyewitness testimony. Thank you that we can trust your word, the prophetic utterances. Thank, it, thank you that it is the God-breathed word. And that we do not trust in man's supposed prophecies that come from their own will. We trust you and you alone. Lord, perhaps this upcoming week, we may have opportunities, we pray for opportunities to share the gospel or to share scripture with a believer that's needing to hear uh, something, maybe they're in distress or need some comfort. Illuminate our minds to your word, God, each and every day, that we would better understand it for your glory. Please keep us safe tonight, give us rest, and use us this week for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.